Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Paul, if you remember, had been seized by a large crowd in Jerusalem who falsely accused him of preaching against the law of Moses and against the temple. They incorrectly believed that he was persuading Jews everywhere to turn away from the traditions of their ancestors. The hostility of the crowd was so great, the commander of the Roman barracks in Jerusalem had to intervene to defuse the situation. While Paul was in his custody, the commander, a man by the name of Lysias, learned that the Jews planned to assassinate Paul, and because Paul was a Roman citizen, he immediately sent him to Felix, the governor in Caesarea, with a letter explaining the dire circumstances. The road from Jerusalem to Caesarea, 60 miles away, was a particularly dangerous one, but what awaited Paul at the end of it was no less risky. Felix was the first slave in history to ever become the governor of a Roman province, and he was well known for being completely corrupt. Historians tell us that because he was determined to safeguard his future, Felix was not above hiring thugs to murder even his own closest supporters if need be. The large military group dispatched by the commander travelled at night in an attempt to minimise the risk of ambush by the Jews, and Luke details some of Paul's dangerous journey in Acts chapter 23, starting at verse 31. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. At Antipatris, the road crossed into Gentile territory, and with decreased risk of attack, the main body of troops turned back to Jerusalem, entrusting Paul to the cavalry for the remainder of the journey. Having read the communication from Lysias, the governor ordered that Paul be placed under guard in Herod's palace, which was the place that served as the governor's official headquarters until the Sanhedrin arrived. Paul would not be kept waiting long. Chapter 24 begins, Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer by the name of Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. 
We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. The high priest and his delegation arrived from Jerusalem, accompanied by a lawyer by the name of Tertullus, who may have been brought along because of his familiarity with Roman law. Tertullus began his speech with blatant flattery, every word of which both he and Felix knew to be quite untrue. For if things were really as peaceful and stable as he claimed, the Jerusalem command would never have had to send 470 men with Paul to ensure his safety. The charges brought against Paul by the lawyer were just as inaccurate. In order to grab Felix's attention, he began by claiming that Paul was an insurrectionist, in other words, a radical revolutionary whose sole purpose was to incite riots among the Jews all over the world. Tertullus knew that the one thing that Rome would not tolerate was civil disorder and that the governor would be quick to prevent any possibility of that. The Romans had also seen their fair share of false messiahs rise up in the past, leaders who by their claims had caused great disturbances among the Jewish people that were only resolved by the shedding of blood. Playing on the certainty that Rome would seek to quell any new messianic movement, Tertullus accused Paul of being the ringleader of a dangerous new sect. The final charge brought against Paul was that he had attempted to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. Nothing could be further from the truth, but this crafty lawyer hoped that the governor might side with the temple priests, who by this time were fully cooperating with Rome. Paul was then allowed to answer the charges against him. Look at verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. 
I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul's defense was that of an innocent man. His conscience was clear and so were his words. He simply states the facts knowing that they would be easy enough for the governor to check. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, not to form a rebellion, and his accusers could not prove the charges that they were bringing against him because they simply were not true. He worshipped the same God that the Jewish leadership professed to worship, but as a follower of the way, which, though they believed to be a sect, really agreed with everything that had been written in the law and the prophets, and that he had the same hope in God as his accusers. Paul reiterated that like many of his accusers, he believed in a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Paul then explained in verse 17, After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence." It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. He reveals to Felix that he had brought contributions from his churches for the poor of Jerusalem and that he had been observing the Jewish law when he'd been arrested. He'd not been causing a disturbance. He disclosed that Jews from the province of Asia were the first to bring accusations against him, and as Paul was aware that those individuals had now returned to Asia, he suggested that if they had anything against him, they should be in attendance to present their case. It seems likely Paul had some understanding of Roman law, as without accusers being present, the law required all charges be dropped. He challenged the Jews in attendance to state what crime they found in him when he'd appeared before the Sanhedrin, adding that the only reason he could think of was that he was on trial for his belief in the resurrection of the dead, which, if you remember, was a view that many of the Pharisees among his accusers would have agreed with. Luke reveals in verse 22 that in response to Paul's statement, the governor, who likely realized the delicate nature of his problem, chose to delay making a decision. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. 
Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That is enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Felix was well acquainted with the way. As governor, he'd heard many reports about Jesus and his followers. Not only that, but his wife Drusilla was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, who, if you recall, had put James to death and imprisoned Peter in Acts chapter 12 before he was eaten by worms and died. No wonder Felix sought to delay making a decision. He surely did not want to cause problems for himself by ruling against the Sanhedrin, but he also may have hesitated to go against the followers of the way and their God. Paul's Roman citizenship, no doubt, also complicated the matter as well. And so Felix procrastinated. He declared that he would wait until he next saw the commander of the garrison at Jerusalem before making his decision. He placed Paul in the protective custody of a centurion, while at the same time giving him some freedom, allowing Paul contact with his friends. Interestingly, Paul not only had the opportunity of ministering to his friends, he also had the opportunity to share the gospel with Felix and his wife Drusilla as well. However, when Paul spoke to them of righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, we're told that Felix was very afraid and said, that's enough for now, you may leave when I find it convenient, I will send for you. Some might wonder why Felix would respond in such a way, but he really had much to be troubled about. Historians tell us that he had previously employed a sorcerer to persuade Drusilla to leave her husband to be his third wife. No wonder he reacted with fear to Paul's preaching of righteousness and self-control. Confronting, he was terribly afraid of the judgment that seemed inevitable. Felix could have repented. He could have asked Christ to forgive him, just as Paul had done all those years before. But again, he procrastinated, promising to call for the apostle again when he found it more convenient. In truth, Felix was not interested in the message that Paul preached. Luke reveals that the only reason he repeatedly called Paul into his presence was because he was hoping that Paul might offer him a bribe to let him go. In verse 27, Luke reports in his understated way that when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. 
It's interesting to me that though Paul surely understood that Felix wanted a bribe, he was unwilling to pay one. He had fully entrusted his future into God's care. Felix never sent for Lysias either, and we learn that two years later, Paul was still in custody. Though Felix had wanted to grant favor to the Jews by keeping Paul in custody, he was not able to protect his own political future in the end. You see, a conflict arose between the Greeks and Jews living in Caesarea that ended in mob violence as a result of the governor's interference. In the end, Hundreds of Jews were killed when Felix sided with the Greeks, and because of his mishandling of that situation, he was eventually recalled to Rome, and the Emperor Nero appointed Portius Festus in his place. The Jews were quick to try to influence the new governor against Paul, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 25, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there, if the man has done anything wrong. Festus was a very different governor than Felix had been. Unfortunately, he died after only two years in office, but he was an honorable man who maintained his good reputation to the end. Festus quickly made his way to Jerusalem, as was the custom of all new governors, and when he met with the Jewish leadership, they immediately tried to take advantage of him by appealing for Paul to be sent to Jerusalem. The Jews apparently hadn't forgotten their previous plot to assassinate Paul, and they hoped for a second opportunity to carry it out. Festus, however, very wisely suspected their motives, and so he chose not to send Paul anywhere, but invited the apostles' accusers to Caesarea to plead their case before him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, he, Festus, went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many serious charges against him which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Paul's short defense reveals that their accusations had not changed. They were still accusing him of breaking their religious law, of acting against the temple and of inciting people to rebel against Caesar. But because they couldn't prove any of their charges against him, as a citizen of Rome, Paul should have been released immediately. Festus knew this. However, 
He had no desire to offend the Jewish leadership in the early days of his governorship, and so he offered a compromise in verse 9. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Paul was asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem to stand trial while Festus supervised the proceedings. Realizing the unlikelihood of a fair trial, Paul refused. Perhaps he knew that the Jews would make a second attempt on his life. Perhaps he knew the Jews would make an attempt on his life as they had planned to do before. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal directly to Caesar. When Paul uttered the fateful words, I appeal to Caesar, Festus was really left with no choice. And so it was that Paul took the first step on the path that would ultimately lead him to Rome, just as the Lord had promised many years before. Before acting on Paul's request, Festus received a visit from Herod Agrippa II and his wife Bernice. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had the opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. Herod Agrippa II ruled a small section of Galilee and Perea with Rome's permission, and he was anxious to pay the new governor a courtesy visit. 
Agrippa was as evil as all his predecessors, and Bernice was not only his wife, she was also his sister. The scandal of their relationship had reached even the halls of the imperial palace in Rome itself. These two stayed for several days in Caesarea, and during the course of their discussions, because Festus knew Agrippa had a thorough knowledge of the Jewish faith and customs, he decided to review Paul's case with him. He gave Agrippa an unbiased assessment of the situation and confessed that he had been particularly surprised by some of the charges that the Jewish leaders had brought against Paul, explaining to Agrippa that they had not charged him with any of the crimes that he'd expected. All of their complaints involved questions concerning the Jews' own religion and a certain dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. Not only did Festus feel unqualified to pronounce judgment concerning these things, but in truth, he was not sure any of their accusations would matter to Caesar. He explained how he had wanted Paul to return to Jerusalem to be judged, but that Paul had appealed to Caesar and now he would have to be sent to Rome. No doubt this must have appealed to Agrippa's sense of pride and the fact that the new governor would seek his counsel on anything must have surely given him great satisfaction. No wonder Agrippa was anxious to hear Paul for himself. Verse 23. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him, therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place I might have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. What an incredible scene this must have been. Agrippa and Bernice would have had on their royal robes and crowns. Festus would have been dressed in the scarlet robe worn by governors on important occasions. The auditorium was filled with commanders and all the important men of the city. It was to this imposing gathering that Paul was brought, his hands shackled by chains. Festus introduced Paul to the dignified assembly as the man the Jews wanted dead, but he explained that he had not found him guilty of anything worthy of that punishment. Festus admitted that he now faced a difficulty himself, as Paul had appealed to Caesar, who, by the way, also went by the title of Augustus. 
and he believed it unreasonable to send a prisoner to Rome and not specify the charges against him. The governor hoped that by listening to Paul's defence, King Agrippa II might be able to come up with some legitimate charges that could be levelled against Paul as he was sent to Caesar. As we get into the next chapter, we'll learn of Paul's exciting defence before Agrippa and we'll discover what the king had to say about him. Join me next time because I think you won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that during such a long delay of two years, Paul kept his eyes firmly fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of his faith. Lord, I pray that you would give us that same ability to stay fixed on Jesus, even when we face delays in our lives or injustice or difficulty understanding why things have gone the way that they have. Lord, help us to remain faithful and always to share the gospel with whomever comes across our path. We pray this in Jesus' precious name and thank you for him. Amen. Well, God bless you and I look forward to you joining me next time. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at In the Word. 